Friends, there are many reasons why we can and ought to give thanks to God. And I hope you have many reasons to do so. But one of the greatest is that indeed He has given us His Son. And through Christ, all those who repent of their sins and trust in Him are given eternal life. Praise be to God. We want to give thanks to God for giving us His Son. As we prepare to hear God's Word, I wonder if you've ever been on the receiving side of hearing empty words, empty promises, being told something and recognizing that the promise was empty, expecting that something would happen to come to realize that nothing was going to happen. You remember the feeling of disappointment you have when others feel like or, or, or give us those empty words or promises? You remember how your soul, your heart cringes in you and there's a, there's a sense of, of, of even anger or deep disappointment at empty words? Well, this morning, I want us to consider the reality of empty worship. And unlike being on the receiving side of hearing empty words that others may make towards us or empty promises, when it comes to worship, when it comes to empty worship, we are the perpetrators. We are the ones who who can fall into it towards God. This morning, would you open God's Word to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, as we are continuing our our series of sermons um, through the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. You may find this passage on page number 617. 617. Let's open God's Word and listen to what God had to speak to His people in the Old Testament. And through that passage, he He still speaks to us today. This is God's Word. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel, and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day, will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to 
and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall, then shall your, right, your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the sabbath a delight and the holy day of the lord honorable if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or walking idly then shall you shall take delight in the lord and i will make you ride on the heights of the earth i will feed you with the heritage of jacob your father for the mouth of the lord has spoken amen bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you that you give your people both warnings and promises. We thank you that your promises are not empty, even though often the worship of your people falls in the traps of empty worship. God, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Help us see what you have intended to speak to your people from of old, and help us to learn from that word and speak to our hearts in a way that leads us to a worship that is authentic and rich and meaningful, and most of all, a worship that is acceptable into your sight. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Friends, the passage we just read belongs to a section in the book of Isaiah where God speaks about his restored community and what that community ought to look like. This theme of a restored community began in chapter 56, where God welcomed foreigners and the eunuchs and the outcasts, and God promised to gather even more to his people. Sadly, however, God's people were in danger of following unqualified leaders who failed to lead God's people to follow God faithfully. So as a result of having poor spiritual leaders, we see the fruits of departing from God, even among this restored community. So in chapter 57 that we looked at last week, God confronted his people. Some of them adopted pagan worship, worship practices that were against God's word, and they incorporated them nevertheless into their practices. In reality, by incorporating their worship or other forms of worship into the worship of God, 
they have rebelled against God. They also relied for their protection on man-made alliances to, uh, to foreign kings, with foreign kings, so that through those man-made alliances, they sought the protection of their lives rather than turning to God and trusting Him for their protection. So God confronted them in chapter 57 with their rebellion. And they, He promised them that they would not inherit His, His holy mountain, that there's no peace for those who live in rebellion towards God. God promised not only that the, the inheritance of His kingdom will be not given to them, but God also promised that those who humble themselves, those who come to God with a repenting heart, with a contrite, lowly, broken spirit, that God would revive them, that God would restore them. There's more hope in a contrite and lowly spirit that runs to God than in a confident, boastful spirit that chooses to stay far from God. God promised to restore His people if they were contrite, lowly of spirit and contrite in heart. In chapter 58, this theme of exposing sin, exposing their rebellion, continues. And unlike chapter 57, where their rebellion was, was displayed through the integration of foreign practices of worship being brought into the worship of God, in chapter 58, the confrontation is different. The confrontation deals with the practices that God did tell them to practice, but they were practicing it in a way that displeased the Lord. In 50, chapter 58, their rebellion shows up in their own worship. Their empty worship is exposed in how they fasted and in how they approached the Sabbath. Their empty worship manifested in how they fasted and how they approached the Sabbath. So as we look at how God exposes their sin, we want to look at three things that, that we see here in this passage. And even though the details of the fasting or of the keeping of the Sabbath may be different today for us than it was for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, their lessons of how God confronts them, how God confronts their rebellion, that we can learn for our own worship of the Lord. Three things that we learn about God confronting uh, their empty worship. First of all, God calls for public exposure of sin. God calls for public exposure of sin. Notice verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Friends, let me ask you, how many of you, or how many among us would like for our sin to be declared out in the open as loud as a trumpet? Just ask yourself, as you gather, as we gather weekly, can you imagine being in a gathering in which God commands his prophet to say, declare to my people their sins. And it's not a, can I tell you something in private? It's not even, can we, can we let's speak in closed doors. 
It's not even that. It's cry aloud. And it's so loud that God even gives him a picture to recognize how loud this confrontation and exposure of sin is to, to take place. Is as loud as a trumpet. Have you ever sat next to a trumpet that's being blown? It's loud. And God says, declare the sins of my people openly, loud. You may say, why? Well, if we remember in chapter 56, one of the problems that the, even the restored community faced is that the, the leaders they have chosen over them would be like silent dogs. Remember that picture? Silent dogs. Leaders who were like silent dogs who couldn't bark. And they let the congregation, they let the people live with their rebellion, not address it, not address the danger. So after a while of, of experiencing that, God says to his prophet, to Isaiah, you speak up. Speak loudly. I want to confront my people with their sin. Would you like to belong to a community like that? Would you like to worship a God who meets his people in confronting them with their sin? Let me ask you, if you were in Isaiah's shoes, what would you have done? Would you have exposed the people and the, their sin out loudly? I ask you this because somehow today we cringe at the responsibility confront sin openly. Some today might think that it's not loving to confront sin openly or that it will drive people away. Yet here God commissions his prophet not only to expose sin but to do so aloud with a voice like a trumpet. And notice what was their impression of themselves in verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God, they delight to draw near to God. Wow. This is the people to whom God sent the prophet to confront their sin. Notice their impression of themselves. And this is why we might understand why God says open, their, their open, open uh, the, 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 the exposure loudly and bring it loudly. Their impression that they had about, about themselves, that they were seeking the Lord daily, that they were delighting to know God's ways. They had the impression that they were a nation that did what is right in God's sight and that they listened to God. They even had feelings of delight in drawing near to God. Yet with all this self-assessment, God's assessment of them is different. It's opposite. Friends, it is God's assessment that ultimately matters, not ours. Actually, we are not good assessors of our spiritual lives. That's why we must always check ourselves against God's Word. That's why we need one another to help us see the blind spots that naturally we would not see. We naturally tend to have a better view of ourselves than we actually ought to. As this chapter develops, God exposes the two areas where their lives were off track, fasting and Sabbath-keeping. Both of them were part of worshiping God. They were not the only part of worshiping God, but these were two parts 
two aspects of what involved worshiping God. So let's look at, at how God exposes their sin. The second point, if you like taking notes, is God exposes empty worship. God exposes empty worship. Why was their worship empty? Well, let's look at two characteristics which made their worship empty and worthless before God that we see in this passage. These are not the only characteristics of empty worship. There's many others if we read the rest of the scriptures. But in this passage, we see two characteristics that describe empty worship. First, empty worship is motivated by self-interest. Empty worship is motivated by self-interest. In other words, what motivates worship that is empty is self-interest. Look at the complaint the Israelites had in verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not now? Why have you, we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? In other words, they were fasting, but they were bothered that it made no difference to God. For he did not bring them the desired wishes that they had. They were interested, apparently, not so much in God, but in what God was supposed to give them. In verse 3, we see more explicitly their self-interested motivation. God says in verse 3, in the second half, Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Even in their day of fasting, they were motivating by their own desires. In seeking their own pleasure, they were oppressing their workers. Now, this gives us a hint of what was going on with them at the time when Isaiah wrote. The higher class in Israel was actively engaging in days of fasting, and that often meant taking off from work. While they took off from work, they made their servants work harder and to do their jobs as well. So the servants were even more oppressed on the days of fasting because the, the owners did not work, but the workers had to work more. Another manifestation that they were self-motivated or self-interested is that their days of fasting were occasions when they began quarreling and even fighting, even physically. Look at verse 4. Behold, you hold only, you hold fast, or you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. In other words, while they were claiming that they are seeking God and worshiping Him, their horizontal relationships with one another were getting worse. And God says, fasting like this, like this day, will not make your voice to be heard on high. In other words, such worship is empty. It is useless. Because you're, you're coming to worship, but your heart is still motivated by your self-interest. And the Israelites in Isaiah's time were not the only ones. In New Testament times, the church in Corinth experienced a similar challenge, particularly when they gathered to observe the Lord's Supper. Paul said to them, as we read earlier in our service, he said, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you get, come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Is it possible to gather for worship? And the effect to be far worse than better. How can that happen? 
by the way, if it's, if it's worse, God says it's not because, you know, music didn't go well or the service was too long. That's not, that's not why the service was, not, was worse. For them, it was because they were, there were divisions among them. The opportunities to get together were opportunities to speak evil to one another or evil about one another. It happens when we are driven by self-interest, by, by, by the times when we seek our own pleasure rather than seeking God. And if others are an obstacle to accomplish our pleasure or our self-interest, we are willing to begin quarreling and in some extreme situations even to start a fight. Some have experienced the sad realities of such living, even in the life of a church. And for some, after seeing such experiences, they have chosen to turn away from God, or they have chosen to turn away from church. Well, friends, this passage tells us that even God wants to turn away from such forms of worship, and that even God would have nothing to do with such empty forms of worship, where worshipers gather but only to satisfy their pleasure or self-interest. That's why God is exposing publicly and very openly this particular sin of empty worship. God wants everybody to know that He is not endorsing or accepting such empty worship. So just because some people engage in empty worship does not mean that all worship is empty, does not mean that God, the worship of God is empty, or that somehow God is not worthy of our genuine pursuit, or that somehow we can live our spiritual lives apart from the regular gathering of God's people belonging to God's church. Friends, until Jesus returns, the church will always have to be vigilant against falling into empty worship that is motivated by self-interest and pleasure rather than God-centeredness. Ask yourself, is your desire to worship God motivated more by your own self-centered desires, your own self-interest, or is it motivated pursue God, to seek His agenda, not yours, to seek His kingdom, not yours, to seek His interest, not yours. Our desire as a church is to constantly reevaluate what's going on in our own hearts and make sure that we are motivated by the worship of God and Him alone. Second of all, another characteristic of, a, of, a, of an empty worship is that empty worship focuses merely on the outward forms. In verse 5, God says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Some in the Old Testament um, times, some of the fasting involved the act of putting on sackcloth and ashes. Fasting like that was a symbol of humbling oneself before the Lord. It was a symbol of repentance. But here God says, if you just go through the outward forms, but lacking the heart behind it, if your worship stops merely at, the, at going through the outward behavior, such, such worship is unacceptable. Even in the Old Testament, God was never interested in just an outward appearance of worship. It is as if today we would say and we would think that merely showing up to church made God happy. 
They fail to realize that outward form without an inward engagement is empty. Or if we read the Bible, but we do so just to check off our list, and we think of ourselves as, as more as better spiritually just because we read the Bible while we continue to ignore how what we read in the Bible ought to change our hearts, our thinking, our lives, our day-to-day experience. The two characteristics of worship that God exposes that makes worship empty is worship that is motivated by self-interest and worship that is mere outward performance. In the rest of the chapter, God clarifies what true worship involves. So after exposing empty worship, let's look at the third point. God clarifies what true worship involves. And there's four characteristics of what true worship involves. We see this in in verses 6 through 14. The first characteristic of true worship, true worship leads to forsaking wickedness and living out justice. True worship leads to forsaking wickedness and living out justice. Look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? In other words, seeking God's favor during fasting while holding on to wickedness, to oppressing others, is pointless. Fasting out to involve more than, uh, or fasting ought to involve more than mere restraining from food. Fasting and worship ought to involve the, the readiness to restrain from wickedness, from sin, from oppressing others. You might say, well, I'm not oppressing others. We don't have servants today that we give commands to. Are there ways in which other milder manifestations of oppressing others by your demeaning words or with an overly critical spirit? Are you known for always demanding but without showing encouragement and support? There's ways we show suppression or oppression of others by the mere words we might use towards someone else. True worship leads to forsaking wickedness and living out justice breaking the bonds of oppression. Second of all, a second characteristic of true worship. True worship leads us to be generous towards the needy. Look at verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In other words, (laughs) pursuing justice It's not just about changing government policies. Pursuing justice and worship is a lot more personal. We seek justice and worship by what we do with our possessions and what we do with our homes. Seeking justice involves sharing with those in need. It involves opening our home to those in need. It involves providing clothing for those who don't have it. I love how one of the commentators said, justice involves not turning away from a fellow human being when they are in need. A true fast is when one is willing to give a one's possessions for the sake of another. Why is this call to live out justice, starting with our finances and with our home? 
Sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is open up our lives to others. Opening up what is most precious to us, to others. Either our possessions or and our home. There are a number of ways we can see what is truly in our hearts. But what we do with our money and what we do with our home, what we do with what we call our private space, shows where our heart is. Friends, when was the last time that you even had someone over at your house? For a meal. Is your worship affecting the way you use your home? Is your worship affecting the way you use your home space? Is it affecting your generosity? Is it affecting your relationships? By God's grace, I am seeing some wonderful fruit sprouting out among us. Praise God. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see when, when members open up their lives to one another in various ways, including finances, including using home, including reaching out to those who are in need. But just because it's happening among some in our congregation, I want to ask you, encourage you to consider, is it happening in you? Is it happening in your own heart and life? Being able to provide for those in need, being able to open our home, being able to, uh, to help one another means that we need to make some decisions about the lifestyle that we engage. It means we need to talk about how we budget. It means we need to consider spending less on ourselves so that we may have more gift to others. Why? Not because you're forced to. Not because the church imposes this on you. No. But because God says that what you do with your life is a reflection of what you worship. And thinking or saying that you worship God vertically while you ignore the implications of that socially and horizontally is empty worship. As a church, we want to encourage one another. We want to spur one another to love and good deeds. That's why we're supposed to gather. When we gather regularly, we're supposed to encourage one another towards love, loving one another, loving others, and doing good to one another. As a church, we also have a benevolence fund. The deacons give oversight to assist those who go through a season of special needs. As members, we can give towards that fund and know that our deacons want to use it wisely and, and, and concretely for legitimate needs among God's people. I'm so thankful for Brother, brother uh, Paul Beeman who has been leading our congregation to be involved regularly in the ministry to the soup kitchen, to help those in need. I'm so glad to those who have gone even this past week to be a part of that ministry. But may I say, our ministry to the poor is not limited just to what we do to the soup kitchen. Sometimes it's easy to just outsource some of that ministry outside, but yet in our lives, in our personal and family lives, we still stay pretty isolated. Pray that we would help that, that we would see that true worship indeed leads to how we uh, help others. True worship leads to how we treat others, a third characteristic of true worship, how we 
treat others. There's a twice in this passage, a if-then promise that God says. Uh, and the first one is in verse 9. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness. What does it mean to take away the pointing with the finger? This expression shows up only one other time in the Bible. In Proverbs 6, 12 through 14. A worthless person, a wicked person, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. In other words, the man who points with the finger also winks with his eye and moves with his feet, he devises evil without actually saying it. He's just giving the, the body language. He is devising evil but does not want to say it openly. He harbors it inside him, makes plans quietly. He appears to act innocently to others, but he's devising destructive plans. It is possible that some people act very religiously on the outside, but quietly behind the scenes, they're acting wickedly towards others. They are the people who you can't put your finger on on a public visible act because they know how to cover their public acts, but nevertheless think and plan destructively towards others. That's a person who uses the finger to motion evil, but he doesn't actually say it. Then there's those who actually um, speak wickedness. Not only those who plan quietly to devise wicked plans towards others, but actually speak wickedness. Speaking wickedness involves any speech that destroys others. Slander, gossip, deception, falsely accusing others. True worship, dear friends, ought to lead us not to speak wickedly about others or to others. Are we concerned if are you concerned if your speech is hurting others? Friends, true worship ought to affect the way we speak to others. True worship changes how we treat others. I love how one of the uh, preachers in England, David Jackman, once said, true faith exists to bless others. That true faith exists to bless others. It calls us to change our thoughts, to change our, our hearts towards others, Cause us to change our act, our speaking towards others, and it causes to change our actions in order to meet the needs of others. Friends, if we worship a God who cares for us, we must grow in how we care for one another. If you think you're growing in worshiping God, but it does not translate in how you care for others, you are growing in a worship that is empty and useless. A fourth characteristic about true worship is that it reorients our desires from ourselves to God. You might be surprised in verse 13 and 14 to hear that after God spoke about not conforming to a merely outward form of worship, in verse 13 and 14, God actually speaks to his people about the way they were keeping the Sabbath. Verse 13 and 14, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure, on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, and seeking your own pleasure, or taking idly, talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Notice what exactly is God calling out in their practice of the Sabbath. They were doing their own pleasure on God's day. In other words, their agenda and their desires were more important than the public act of worship. Today, as followers of Christ, we don't observe the Sabbath as a Saturday based on what God revealed to us through Jesus and in the New Testament. And even Sunday is not to be viewed as a Christianized Sabbath. But we can learn from what God is speaking to His people about their public worship. And God in the New Testament calls us to gather regularly for public worship. The reason why they were not honoring the Sabbath was because they were pursuing their own pleasures more than God. Just because we don't have to observe the Sabbath does not mean that we are free to pursue our own pleasures above God. The New Testament speaks clearly of the need to gather regularly and publicly for worship. For example, Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews says, Do not forsake your assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. It is possible that the way we think about our public worship may actually reveal what we put our desires on above God. In the Old Testament, God desired for His people to call the Sabbath a delight. In other words, if their impression was that the Sabbath was a burden, they missed out God's intent of how God wanted them to worship. It meant that their hearts were clinging to something other than God if the Sabbath became a burden for them. God wanted His people to enjoy and to delight in the regular patterns of public worship. God, again, says, if you dishonor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. Worship is supposed to orient how we live our entire week, not just one day a week. True worship affects what we seek. Do we seek more satisfying our own pleasures or the Lord? If you say, for example, I have to go to church on Sunday. When you say, I have to go to church on Sunday, that answer may actually reveal something of what's going on in your heart. You're putting it as a duty. Now, it's true we should go to church on Sunday. But if you're using it and describing it as a mere duty, you actually may miss out on what God wants your heart to be like when we gather regularly. Instead, if you were to say, I want to go to church on Sunday. When someone is asking you in the cashier line, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, nothing. What an opportunity to miss. What an opportunity you're missing to say something. I want to go. I'm looking forward to go worship with God's people. But if you just say, I just want to, I have to go to church on Sunday. That just shows that you actually may be operating with a more of a duty-bound heart. And from the very beginning, even in the Old Testament, God's desire has been that the Sabbath, the worship of the Lord, the public gathering of God's people was supposed to be a delight. Ask the Lord to reveal what is it in your heart when you just think about our, our worship as merely a duty? Is there something in the heart that inclines your heart to, to, to fall into empty worship because you are considering it merely a duty and not a delight? Sin, dear friends, oftentimes will pull us in the trap of thinking of worship as just a burden or just a duty. 
we've seen four characteristics of what true worship involves. But along with these four characteristics, God also includes the benefits of true worship. The benefits of a true worship are restoration and refreshment. And to see a picture of that, I'm going to read a few verses from, the, from, these, from this text just to see how God paints a picture of, of the benefits of true worship. Verses 8 and 9. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Look at verse 10. Then you shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as a noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. And then look at verse 14. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Friends, all this is a list of the kind of things God will do to his people to restore them and bring refreshment to them when they turn to the Lord and engage in true, genuine worship to the Lord that has their heart oriented away from themselves and oriented to the Lord. The Lord is the one who restores. The Lord is the one who heals. The Lord is the one who makes us to be a people of restoration. If only, if only we would turn away from empty worship. Let's recognize that as New Testament believers, the only way for us to have meaningful and true worship before God that is acceptable is through Jesus Christ. If we have not turned away from our own sin, repented of it and trusted in Christ, none of the good acts we might do, none of the changes we might do in our lives would be worth anything. Because the first condition as New Testament believers for our worship is to come to God through Jesus, the Son. If you have never turned away from your sin, if you have never turned away from your own pursuit of your own desires and interests, first and foremost, the first step I call on you to do is to turn away to Christ and trust on Him, on His sacrifice to accomplish for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. If you'd like to know more about that, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. For those of us who have turned away from our own sin and trusted in Christ, recognize that our life of worship needs continually to be vigilant to be sure that we don't turn it back to a self-centered, self-interest-motivated worship, that we use Jesus or we use a church or we use a worship as just a means of getting what we want, our self-centered, self-desired motivations. Because in those moments, it's easy for us to turn what we might look like and think that it's good, acceptable worship into an empty worship. We have seen this morning, God calls for public exposure of sin. God exposes corrupted worship. God clarifies what true worship involves. Friends, an empty worship is a worship that assumes a vertical relationship with God while abusing or ignoring the horizontal relationships with others. An empty worship is merely an outward performance with no inward affection 
that manifests in a transformed living. The day of fasting was supposed to encourage greater care for people meeting their needs. The day of fasting was supposed to encourage forsaking injustice, oppression, destructive speech. But sadly, none of those things happen. True worship affects how we think, how we feel, how we speak towards others. Do we speak in a way that builds others up? Ask yourself, is your worship of God affecting how you live out your life? the choices you make, the way you relate to others, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your possessions, the way you use your home, the way you use your words. I want to close with a quote by David Jackman. God cannot be deceived. To imagine that observing the externals of covenant obedience will pay God off and excuse us from the requirements of heart obedience and the discipline of growing in godliness is a tragic miscalculation. It reveals how far the heart is from God. And to such hearts, God would say, speak up like a trumpet. Expose the sin. We cannot be quiet about it. May God help us be people who are vigilant over our own hearts and over one another to protect ourselves and one another of empty worship. Would you pray with me? Father, we recognize that our own hearts can wander away from the truths of your word. We can wander away in holding on to some forms of outward godliness while inwardly our hearts have set our affections on something else, on ourselves, on our own pursuits. Father, forgive us. Grant us eyes to see Grant us hearts that are willing to receive the correction of your word. Father, help us to realize various ways in which our hearts can misfire. Help us, O Lord, to realign our hearts and lives, our behaviors, our day-to-day living, the way we treat one another, the the way we treat the needy, the way we treat your people. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that embraces you above ourselves. We pray this in the name of Christ.